the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back and happy Monday, April 12, 2021. There's an item in the news that Patrice Colors, one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement, recently bought a $1.3 million home in California, but also four other properties. Her properties seem to be worth north of $5 million. Now, recall, she and BLM co-founder Alicia Garza have declared themselves to be trained Marxists. Coulors is famous for saying, quote, the brutal history of colonialism is one in which white people literally stole land and people for their own gain and material wealth, close quote. Well, I can tell you that ain't true of my family. And if you wanted to fight colonialism, you would have been supportive of the revolution here in 1776. That was a revolution against colonialism. But no, Coulors is talking about a different kind of colonialism, the kind Nikita Khrushchev introduced into the United Nations in order to fight the West, i.e. labeling any enemy of Marxism a colonial power to A, marginalize the power being fought, and B, to instigate and empower the terrorists in those countries with attractive and felicitous names and concepts to rewrite, well, what they really were terrorists. In any event, Patrice Coulors can't be faulted for stealing land. She's bought an awful lot, presumably not for her own gain and material wealth, which she condemns, right? Reminds me of the story of Leonid Brezhnev showing one of his famous ornate dachas to his mom, and she responded, so this is what, meant, this is what is meant by the dictatorship of the proletariat. This movement built to fight repression has done quite well. In a country where it says black lives don't matter and that we all have to recite that they do, you have the head of that movement buying a house for over a million dollars, and you have that movement itself raising over $90 million last year, a year where most nonprofits as well as for-profits were struggling like hell. They sure know how to market, and they did, taking in some $90 million in a down economic year. A major profile of one of the founders of BLM, Patrice Coulor's colleague, Alicia Garza, was done on CBS Sunday Morning a few months back. And why not? She had a new book out. To those of us that have researched the BLM movement and organization a bit, we knew the name Alicia Garza. She, along with Coulors, is the other self-declared trained Marxist. To point that out is to be considered missing the point or to engage in some kind of slander of a good and decent movement or people. I continually point out it's not slander if it's true, and it's not criticism if you call someone what that person calls themselves and boasts about. Of course, none of this, none of it, was raised by the person on CBS, Mark Whitaker, 
who interviewed her. What you got instead was a puff piece, a promotional piece, a major show segment promoting Miss Garza and her movement. She's nothing, doing nothing more than, quote, founding groups aimed at empowering women and building black political power, close quote. That was the most interesting thing to me, not a single question on her actual and radical beliefs, just about how she got started and not ideologically but physically with the use of social media and a personal story. And that personal story was the second most interesting thing to me. Let me quote directly from the CBS transcript. Quote, so that was your first big cause as an activist, asked Whitaker. Garza says, I was 12 years old. I was in middle school. In her book, Garza recounts a formative moment at age 17, a run-in with a police officer who found her smoking marijuana with a friend and let her off with only a warning. She said, I was a kid who was doing things the kids do, and I was given a shot, but most black kids who were my age at that time, are not given a shot. And guaranteed, if I had been a 17-year-old black girl in West Oakland caught with the same amount of marijuana, I would have spent not just the night, but a lot longer in jail. I would have had a criminal record, close quote. So I'm not following. 12 years old or 17 years old? Perhaps the facts don't matter. But what is most interesting to me is her grievance, her complaint. Her start is all based on something that did not happen and something that was hypothetical. She was a young black woman caught breaking the law, what she says, doing things the kids do. I suppose like when Nancy Pelosi says people will do what people would do when asked about Antifa destroying statutes, statues in Baltimore. Garza, she, she was caught breaking the law back when anti-marijuana enforcement was much stricter than today, and she was released with no incident at all. But she invents in her mind how that would not be the case with someone else. Invents, speculates, hypothesizes. And just as we know the major themes of institutional racism, especially in our police departments, are based on non-fact, so too the formative moment, as Garza puts it, in her catalyzing of activism. Something that didn't happen. No incident. One she dreamed up might happen to someone else. Not a single question about being a trained Marxist, not a single follow-up to what she said in the interview. After all, to underscore it would be to underscore the antithesis, the antithesis of her formative moment and movement, not its thesis. But there's that nagging Marxist dialectic again, isn't there, complete with a synthesis built around a hypothesis that in actuality contradicts the thesis. Or as Vladimir Lenin put it, the struggle of mutually exclusive absolutes. George Orwell makes it easier to hold simultaneously two opinions which cancel out, knowing them to be contradictory and believing in both of them to use logic against logic to repudiate morality while laying claim to it. As for Kalurs, she declares herself a police abolitionist, so I take it none of her homes have security systems. But can we talk about a police abolition movement and the BLM for just a moment? What is the greatest danger to black lives in America, at least the greatest preventable danger to black lives in America today? Larry Elder writes, the number one cause of preventable death for young white men is accidents such as car accidents and drownings. 
The number one reason for death, preventable or otherwise for young black men, is homicide, almost always at the hands of another young black man. In the most recent year for which we have data, there were approximately 7,400 black homicide victims, more than half of the nation's total number of homicides, while the black population is only 13% of the U.S. total. Jason Johns, former deputy commissioner of the Baltimore police, has an op-ed in the Arizona Republic today, and he writes that last year, the United States tallied more than 20,000 murders, the highest total since 1995, and 4,000 more than the year prior, 2019. Preliminary preliminary FBI data for 2020 points to a 25% surge in murders, the largest single-year increase since the agency began publishing uniform data in 1960. Policing is to blame, or rather, the lack of it. In the wake of the May and June unrest last year, public officials' decisions and growing hostility towards policing left law enforcement demoralized, debilitated, and in some cases defunded. Even the most dedicated officers who now face a greater risk of being sued, fired, or prosecuted for doing their job feel pressure to pull back. The message from a new wave of progressive prosecutors is clear. Making arrests for drug and weapons crimes that will go unprosecuted exposes officers to the risk of disciplinary action, lawsuits, and criminal prosecution. To mitigate that risk, police take a more passive approach. Data shows a precipitous decline in law enforcement activity from last June through this February. We found that across the 10 major cities we studied, deadly violence rose as engaged policing fell. Cities that cut or threatened to cut police budgets often saw the largest drops in active policing and largest increases in homicides. After the George Floyd protests started in New York City, the New York Police Department logged 45,000 fewer arrests from June to December, a 38% decline, while New York added more than 100 additional homicides, a 58% increase. From June through the end of this February, Chicago's police made 31,000 fewer arrests, a 53% decline, as murders rose 65%. In Louisville, where massive unrest included the shooting of two police officers during a protest, homicides jumped 87 percent as the police made 35 percent fewer vehicle stops and arrests plummeted 42 percent during the summer months year over year. From Los Angeles and Houston to New Orleans and Minneapolis, the political response to the unrest led to depolicing and the resulting record violence. Already bloody, St. Louis hit a 50-year homicide high, a rate of 87 per 100,000 residents, a rate three times higher than Mexico and Central America. As Milwaukee announced slashing 120 officers from its police force, the city saw a 98% increase in killings. Philadelphia hit a 30-year high with 500 homicide victims in 2020 and more than 12021 so far. As progressive district attorney Larry Krasner has dropped 50% of both drug and illegal gun cases, police have reduced vehicle and pedestrian stops by 72%. In 2020, overall arrests fell by a third. Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw grudgingly admitted that public officials' attacks 
demoralized the police, encouraging depolicing. Over the summer, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler defunded the Portland Police Bureau by $12 million and eliminated three police units, and then chaos engulfed the city, with shootings going up 173% and murders jumping an astounding 255%. Yet today, the conversation is about infrastructure, institutional racism, and racism as a pandemic. Let's start a serious discussion on infrastructure, of which the most important is our people, their safety, and their lives. And let's not listen to the hucksters anymore. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Hope you had a great weekend, Bill. Did you have a good weekend? Any movies? Anything fun? Any personal uh, personal records on the running front? See, to answer all those questions, yes, no, no, no. What was the yes to the movie? Good weekend. Oh, no movies? No movies. WrestleMania, though. Who won? It was good. Uh, Roman Reigns won the last match, the biggest uh, match. Okay. All right. Was anyone famous wrestling? Uh, you might know Edge. He's no. nearing 50. Don't. That's it? That's Ed- it from your era, yeah. Edge? Late 90s. What was the best WrestleMania? Was it WrestleMania 1 or 3? Good question. Let's throw it out to the audience. No, no, no. What was the one that made the whole thing with Cindy Lauper? And... Wasn't that one? Was that the first one? I know Hogan Andre was 3. I think that might have been 3 then. Now that all the celebrities might have been 1. you got to kick it off big. I think it was. I think it was 3. I think it all started with WrestleMania 3. In any event, <clears throat> Grover Norquist of the uh, Americans for Tax Reform, he has long said infrastructure is a French word that means everything but roads. I'm beginning that's too generous. When you look at the infrastructure bill that we are now debating, I think it's not even anything like infrastructure. First of all, let's start with what the normal perception of what infrastructure would be to the American public or to the American taxpayer, which is supposed to be funding this $2.3, uh, $2.3 trillion uh, bill. Um, would you expect it to be roads and bridges and maybe train lines, perhaps airports? Well, I suppose if common sense and common language is what obtains, you would think that. But you would be wrong. The tale is told in Newsweek magazine where two Democratic lawmakers wrote a piece And uh, let me just read you how it starts. President Joe Biden's long-awaited American jobs plan has finally arrived, clocking in at $2.3 trillion in spending over eight years. In today's dollars, this is almost five times the new funding provided in President Obama's 2009 American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. And yet, as many have been quick to point out, significantly more investment is still needed to match the scale of the intersecting crises facing our nation 
and to unleash the full potential of the American economy. Did you know we needed the federal government to spend more money, trillions of dollars, to unleash the full potential of the American economy? How about just unleashing the American economy? It's been put on a leash. How about just taking the leash off? Anyone think about that? Listen to these congressmen, though. While its current scale may may fall short, one key takeaway from President Joe Biden's infrastructure plan is that it contains many strong illustrations of equity-based planning, putting the needs of undeserved and disadvantaged communities at the fore. This is how all federal policy should be fashioned going forward. May I read that again? While its current scale may fall short, translate, this, isn't, this is a lot of money, but not enough money to make a difference. One key takeaway from President Joe Biden's infrastructure plan is that it contains many strong illustrations of equity-based planning, putting the needs of undeserved and disadvantaged communities at the fore. Equity-based planning? Equity-based planning. Can anyone tell me what equity-based planning means to them? and that this is how all federal policy should be fashioned going forward? Huh. They go on. As we look to bring our infrastructure up to speed with the 21st century, equitably distributed investments are how we begin to remedy the wrongs of a structurally racist transportation and housing system, reconstruct a more just urban environment, and improve the health and economic well-being of those who have been systematically disadvantaged by our past and current investments in programs. Well, here's an idea. If there has been a systematically racist plan that keeps underrepresented communities, if there's been a systematically racist plan that has kept underrepresented communities from housing, and transportation, um, I think the federal government should call in Patrice Coulors. She represents underrepresented communities and has figured out a way while talking about how impossible it is to get ahead in this country, she's figured out a way to buy five homes. Bring her in. She could give a class to the entire Department of Housing and Urban Development. She could give a lecture on how underrepresented communities can buy property. She sure did it in a system nobody more than her has called racist, and systematically so. Maybe she should do it, or maybe she doesn't want people to know that you can do it. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 34 past the hour brings us our great friend John Dombrowski from Grand Canyon Planning Associates. His website is grandcanyonplanning.com. His own radio show, heard here every Saturday morning at 7 a.m., is The Word on Wealth. We are delighted to have him during the weekdays to give us our culture and economy update. John, happy Monday, beginning of a nice week, huh? 
It sure is. Happy Monday, Seth. I'm glad that you've got all your listeners, our early risers on Saturday. Yes. So that they can tune in. <laughs> yeah. Is 7 a.m. early to you? Well, no, I'm up early. I mean, that's not a problem for me, but I guess some people, Friday night, if you go out and have some fun, maybe you sleep in a little late. Sleeping in to me is like 6 a.m., though. Yeah, I mean, I'm up 6, whether the alarm is set or not. I'm out of bed. There's no question yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah. Bill, I mean, same with you. Are you? Bill's an early riser, too. Bill yes, gets up yeah. around 5, yeah. I think. Me and he, he but and I, I, start, I go to bed early, too. We, yeah, well, there you go. Benjamin Franklin's advice. Yeah. Yeah, wealthy. Hey. You know, interesting. Um, you know, all this, all this talk about Tesla and space and all things that are going on, Seth, uh, Seth right now. In 1981, was the first space shuttle, Columbia. That it was there you go. There you go. So, we've well, come a long way since then. We have, and yet we still are having problems. We shouldn't be having in 2021 <laughs> such a thing as a chip shortage, and yet we uh, do. Something, yeah. Right. Now, how, how are we going to be able to put more people in space right. if we have a tip shortage? Right. We can't, we can't put them in cars car- right now. Yeah, you can't even get them in cars. Right. <laughs> exactly. No, yeah, we have a serious problem right now. And um, what's interesting is uh, President Biden called a meeting today with some of the large U.S. auto uh, people and uh, trying to find out what you know can be done about it. What's really interesting about this whole thing, Seth, is there's, there's a lot of finger-pointing going on right now. Mm-hmm. You know, the automakers, first of all, knew that, that things were progressing quickly with uh, automation of vehicles and a lot of the things that are happening, and that cars are becoming uh, more like tech vehicles mm-hmm. with all these chips. Why didn't they prepare for this? And this is the question that's being asked. You've got people uh, out there saying that they want the government to get involved, but if I was a company, I don't think I'd want the government getting more involved in a supply chain for, for my company. Nope. That's something that companies should be able to do themselves. Yep. Uh, another thing was Huawei. If you remember, we talked yep. about them a long time ago, the Chinese uh, company in manufacturing chips. And, of course, there was a uh, a bit of an issue with um, recently the U.S. over the past couple of years has put some type of roadblocks for them because they thought they were, again, stealing technology from us and spying on us. Um, so there's people pointing at that. So there's so many different angles to come out with this. But the real problem is, is we definitely have a chip shortage for vehicles for computers, for just about anything that computer trips go in right now. Uh, and Intel is trying to do their part by expanding their production. Uh, but we're going to see how, how this all plays out. But it can really be a problem for some of these automakers, and they're talking about layoffs of thousands of people shutting down plants because of it. One of the things I wanted to get your opinion on, uh, you know, the markets, uh, the economy, People like yourself, you have to. You listen a lot to what Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell has to say, yep. um, right? That 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 man, uh, that office, I should say, generally directs the forecasting that so many people attach themselves to when it comes to planning and investment. But I got to tell you, I saw him on an interview with 60 Minutes yesterday, wading into the COVID. Uh, discussions and talking about people still needing to socially distance and wear wear masks. And I I just wonder if that's what we need the chairman of the Federal Reserve to be weighing in on. You know, I I guess from his angle, what he's saying, and I don't, again, I'm just trying to read into why he would even talk about that, uh, is I guess believing if, if, again, we had more of a, uh, you know, another pandemic that hits us because of this, that, uh, again, can shut some areas of the country down and feeling that that would be a problem. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how that 
that that plays into monetary policy, but but he certainly made comments about it, and uh, maybe it's just the times that we're in right now. Everyone seems to be weighing in on it, yeah, um, exactly. and everyone seems to uh, forget the lesson that um, maybe if it's not your area of expertise, take a beat or two, because yeah, the advice will only... change. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, we, yeah. yeah, that's for sure. Well, you haven't been hearing much from Fauci lately. So maybe you got to get other people out there talking about. It. Oh gosh, from your know. from your from your from your mouth to God's ears. <laughs> Again, check out our website, GrandCanyonPlanning.com. You can request an appointment right there with me. And uh, Securities and Advisory Services offered through Client One Securities LLC, a member of Invincipic and Investment Advisor. Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Thank you so much, John Dombrowski. Thank you, sir. We'll talk to you tomorrow. You got it. Bye bye. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero is my number. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Want to uh, put in a word for one of our newest sponsors, Trades Unlimited. Did you know foam roofs here in the Valley are a great option for a lot of homes? That's what Trades Unlimited's expertise is. Not only do foam roofs help insulate from our extreme Arizona heat, which is well on its way, but they also help insulate your home from exterior noises. And most importantly, they protect your house from water leaks. I had the privilege to go down to their offices at Trades Unlimited and their warehouse and meet the team there. And I can honestly say I am more than impressed with the people they have working for them and the quality of craftsmanship they stand by. They're just good people. Founded in 1994 in their 26th year of business. They have an A-plus rating at the BBB, and I can tell you why. Good people, skilled people. Most of their business is by referral or previous customers, and that always tells me a lot about a company. People are happy and come back and want other people to use them. We're delighted to have them on radio as well. Quality and service is what you'll come to know with Trades Unlimited. It's hot here in Phoenix. We all know that. What you may want to know is that the hot summer sun is perfect for foam recoats. Protect your roof before the foam beneath the coating gets compromised. Don't wait until it's too late. Call my friends over at Trades Unlimited at 480-483-1775. That's 480-483-1775. Or find them online at tradesunlimited.com. When you reach out to them, tell Susan and the team I said hello. Dennis Prager did a uh, audio that I think is fantastic. On what's the what's the exact title of it, Bill? Do you have it? And is communism moral? And we're going to play it a little later. Um, but um, the reason I wanted to just bookmark it is because I, I just I got to tell you, a lot is going on in the movements, ideologies that spring out of socialism and communism. It's going on in Washington, D.C. It's going on in a lot of other state capitals. It is um, using uh, not so much the class conflict that used to obtain in Marxist and socialist circles, but I guess some people call this neo-Marxism, but it has replaced the class conflict with race, with race. And as a result, you know, the Marxist ideology, that's what it viewed the world through, the lens of, of class conflict, economic conflict. The Nazi, um, the Nazi ideology viewed people through uh, race 
and the conflict among and the tension between um, the races, particularly the tensions that could be uh, exacerbated and scapegoated. And so what you now have via self-declared Marxist movements using race instead of class as the dividing factor between people or between people in their society is something that looks a lot more like Nazism than it does classical Marxism. That's the odd thing about having traded class for race in the war between peoples. Now, of course, one says, well, what else is there? What else is there? Uh, what else is there? How about not dividing people between um, uh, warring factions of class and race? This is what the American founding was about. Um, it pretty much got it pretty clear when it said all men are created equal. That is to say that we don't have um, we don't have class prejudices built into the law. We don't have race privileges built in. To the law, there is no caste here, as one Supreme Court justice put it, John Harlan, in his dissent in Plessy versus Ferguson. We don't have a caste here, and yet everywhere we turn, everywhere we turn, it seems like it's moving faster and faster in the direction of having a caste separation based on races, a competition based on races. So even in even in something as um, as as basically class free and race free as an infrastructure bill, we are now making it all about race. That too, infrastructure too, now has to be about race. It's about everything but infrastructure. As uh, David Keltz puts it at the American Spectator, um, Pete Buttigieg, who is the Secretary of Transportation and one of the people pitching the infrastructure plan, uh, said the plan is, quote, the best chance in our lifetime to make a generational investment in infrastructure. But this proposal is neither a jobs plan nor an infrastructure plan. What it is is it's a Green New Deal wish list that will raise corporate taxes to 28 percent, increase regulations, and raise income tax rates to their highest levels since the Lyndon B. Johnson administration. Since 1968, the middle class will not be spared this tax burden. Only 6 percent of the package is devoted to what you think of or the ordinary American would think of as infrastructure, roads and bridges and highways. Moody's Analytics estimates that this spending, $2.3 trillion, will create 2.7 million jobs. Now, Buttigieg had to walk back what he earlier was claiming was a 19 million job increase, and he was made to look the fool over the weekend for saying 19 million when the answer when he was confronted with it really is 2.7 million jobs. Um, but in order to sell this non-infrastructure bill, Buttigieg has had to redefine the word infrastructure. When I say infrastructure, you probably have a basic dictionary type understanding of what it means, the basic systems and services that are necessary 
for a country or an organization to run smoothly. Buildings, transportation, water, power supplies. That's how the Oxford English Dictionary defines it. Buttigieg, who was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, is either unfamiliar with this definition or is deliberately misleading Americans. He was asked by Jake Tapper on CNN on Sunday uh, if Republicans could undermine the legislation by uh, referring to the pork barrel spending and the left-wing social programs in it. And Buttigieg said this, quote, I very much believe that all of these things are infrastructure because infrastructure is the foundation that allows us to go about our lives. To me, it makes no sense to say I would have been for broadband, but I'm against it because it's not a bridge. I would have been for elder care, but I'm against it because it's not a highway. Well, that's a sophist's way of saying that infrastructure means whatever he and the Biden administration want it to mean. If you want to deal with elder care, for example, Mr. Buttigieg, you don't put it in an infrastructure bill, and then no one will blame you for misusing the terminology. More on this when we come back. We will be right back. By, by the way, did anyone decide that it might be a good idea to see um, why $2.3 trillion Dollars in spending is to generate 2.7 million jobs. Did anyone just think it might be worthwhile dividing 2.3 trillion by 2.7 million to find out what you get? I did it over the break. I have one of these big calculators that does trillions. We're gonna we're gonna spend 852 thousand dollars per job here. 852 thousand dollars to create a job per job, on average. That is what that is what two point three trillion is divided by two point seven million. Am I doing the math right, Bill? That's what you figure. Eight hundred and fifty-two thousand dollars per job. Okay. Okay. Um, it seems to me, it seems to me, there's a better way to do this. But as um, as uh, as Mr. Keltz over at the um, American Spectator was putting it, Buttigieg is disingenuously claiming those who don't support federal funding for, say, elder care in an infrastructure bill are somehow against helping senior citizens, when in reality they oppose just being sold a bill that isn't as advertised. According to Buttigieg, elder care can now be classified as infrastructure because he says it's just as important as, important as a highway. The same goes for other unrelated items in the bill, including $10 billion to create a civilian climate corps and $5 billion for violence prevention. This tactic is nothing new. The left and other authoritarian regimes have long changed the meaning of language in order to advance radical agendas. In March... Biden signed into law a $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan stimulus package, of which less than 10% was related to COVID relief. The bulk of the package amounted to bailing out blue states and paying off Democratic-run constituencies. It would have been more aptly named the Democratic Party Rescue Plan. The Biden administration's strategy is fairly obvious. 
Create legislation that includes a bevy of progressive programs and increases the scope and size of government and deceptively call it something that sounds more appealing to the average American. Then, once Republicans and other citizens point out that the bill has virtually nothing to do with its intended purpose, accuse them of not wanting to help minority communities or the elderly because you wrote a bill under the name of infrastructure or jobs. That's basically nothing more than the wish list of Patrice Coulors and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders. You do realize Bernie Sanders won the Democratic Party nomination, right? He did win it. It's just not his physical corpus in the White House. 